0: Romans chapter 15, and we'll be finishing up chapter 15 today. We'll be reading from verse 29 through the end of the chapter. The Apostle Paul writes, When therefore I have performed this, I'm sorry, that's verse 28. Verse 29, And I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may with you be refreshed. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray this morning now that that you would give us wisdom and understanding as we look into your Word, as we dig into your Word, Lord, I pray that we we see You high and lifted up. We, we learn from You this morning, Lord. I'm just grateful for this time. Grateful that You've given us Your Word. Uh, revealed it to us. And I pray that we handle it with care. In the name of Christ. Amen. So by way of review, just real fast. You know, we're kind of closing up the letter now. And... uh Paul. Oh, the next chapter is just just naming names of people that that are in, in ministry with and alongside of him. But he's been dealing with uh, the practical applications of the gospel. After he expounded on the gospel for eleven chapters, he's dealt with the practical application of that: how we should live in response. If we say that we believe what it, what he wrote in Romans one through eleven, we should act a certain way. And that's what we've been dealing with. And that's all I'm going to do for review today, so let's, let's move forward. I have three points. Um, the first point is Paul's desire for mutual fellowship. The second point is Paul's desire for the Romans to pray for him and his ministry. And the third point is Paul's desire for them to be full of joy and peace in Christ. So this first point here, Paul's desire for mutual fellowship. Notice that Paul was confident... He was sure that he would make it to Rome. It says, and I am sure that when I come unto you. He's had this on his heart for a while. Even mentioned in in chapter 1 of the same letter, he he says he longed to see them. Paul really desired to see these saints in Rome. So much so that he says also in Romans chapter 1 that he's always making mention of them in his prayers. So they were on his mind. He really did want to come see them. But why? I mean, wasn't Paul busy enough? Did Paul not have enough people to see? Well, first, Paul hadn't been there yet. He'd been all throughout the Eastern world, taking the gospel to all of creation, as he says, but hadn't made it to Rome yet. Also, though, Paul wanted to have mutual fellowship with these people in the gospel. That's what he wanted. It it wasn't just necessarily that I've never seen their faces before, but he wanted to have a mutual fellowship with them. That's what Paul's goal was. Remember I said last week that Paul wasn't headed to Rome because he wanted to taste the best food that Rome had to offer. He wasn't going because he just wanted the experience of being in Rome. He wasn't going to watch the the most popular sporting event. He was going to bless these people and in return receive blessing. But how was he going to bless them? I mean... He was taking the money that he received to Jerusalem and not to Rome, right? Isn't that how God blesses us? It's with abundance of money, right? I'm, turn on television watch some Christian television show. I'm sure that that's what they'll tell you. That you got to be rich and healthy. But Paul was already giving that money to somebody else before he came to them. He says, pretty much, I got a bunch of money that I gotta go take to Jerusalem before I come to see you guys. And I'm gonna drop off all that money, and then I'm just gonna come to you poor. Well, that's not the only way that God blesses us, right? And I would argue that it's one of the least of the ways that God blesses us. Though money can be a great blessing sometimes. However, I bet you this the richest man in hell today would say money's not that big a deal. Money's not that great. However, the poorest man that went to heaven is blessed forevermore. Paul was going to bless them through their common fellowship in the gospel. What does that mean? I mean, isn't the gospel just a message that God uses to save his elect? Isn't that all it's for? You know, the door that we walk through, the gospel, and once we walk through that door, we don't need it anymore. I mean, I'm already justified. What else do I need? I already have my get out of hell free card, right? Or maybe some might say, God used the gospel to save me, but now I just focus on other things within the Christian faith. Like eschatology, or angels, or even fallen angels that came down and impregnated women and they had giants from it. That's my focus now, right? I moved on past the gospel. I'm into the deeper things of the faith. Well, without getting into a study on all that stuff, let me say this, and if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, the main things are the plain things. If you were to get in a plane and take a fly over the Bible... And look down, and look down at, at, at as you're flying over it. You might there might be a, an obscure tree over here, there that you might miss. However, what you won't miss is that God sent forth His Son as a Redeemer for fallen and sinful men and women, of whom you and I are. You won't miss God coming down and taking on flesh and fulfilling the law for us and dying in our place for our sins. And three days later, rising again, and he is now ruling and reigning from his heavenly throne. You can't miss that. It's everywhere. It's the main thing. This is why the Bible is called the story of redemption. It's not the story of your best life now. It's not the story of how to become a better you. It's a story of redemption for sinners. It is so much the main thing that even when the Bible speaks of other things, it's typically pointing to this thing. Let me give you an example of this. When God flooded the world and commanded Noah to build an ark, the ark was a picture of the coming Redeemer who would save the world from the flood of God's wrath. Or how about this, when Abraham takes his only son up the mountain to slaughter him, and God provides a lamb on that mountain to slaughter instead, this is a picture of God taking his only son up Mount Calvary to slaughter him, and he is the lamb. Or when the priests, you know, they're making intercession for the people, and they're slaughtering animals to cover their sins. It was a picture of Jesus Christ who would make intercession for his people because he was slaughtered to take away our sins. Even sometimes in those obscure texts like when Hosea says, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. You probably wouldn't read Hosea and think it was talking about Jesus Christ. But it is talking about Christ after his birth when he fled to Egypt until the death of Herod. And then God sent forth an angel to tell Joseph to bring the child back to Israel. That verse is quoted about Jesus Christ. I mean on Christmas we went through a whole list of these types of pictures of Christ, right? Why? Because that's the main thing. I often say be careful of the guy who is so focused on something within the Christian faith that is not the gospel. You know these types. If you've been in the faith long enough, you know these types. You know these types when you come around them. There's there some that are so focused on the law of God, and they typically pervert the law of God anyways. They add laws to it that aren't actually there. They're so focused on that, that all they do is point out sin and condemn others. You know, the types that all they ever talk about is eschatology. You can't get through a Bible study or discussion about the Bible without them talking about a rapture, the end times, or the millennial reign of Christ, whether that be now, in the future, or never. Those people that their whole life in ministry is simply calling out abortionists or saying, you know, the government, the government being corrupt or Big Farm is evil or the earth is flat. I guarantee you all know or have been around these types before. However, we should have our fellowship and communion, what does it say? In the blessings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul wanted for himself and for others. It wasn't to sit down and have a formal debate on any given topic. It was that he wanted them standing there with him and worshiping the king because he's taken away our sins and called us his brethren and has made us kings and priests. That's our mutual fellowship. That's the blessing of the gospel of Christ. It's not. It's that not only has God saved us from our sins, but he's given us a family of believers here as well to learn from and grow together with in love. Not just that, but we'll spend eternity together doing it. Worshiping our king together. What a blessing. What a hope. That's the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Let's move on here. That's their mutual fellowship. The second point here is Paul's desire for the Romans to pray for him and his ministry. Now, Paul recognized that he wasn't alone. That even though he wasn't at Rome or with these Romans, they still played a part in his ministry and his life. It wasn't as though since he hasn't been to Rome or wasn't going to be there for a while, because remember, it's probably between three to five years before Paul actually made it to Rome. But even in that distance, he still wanted to be part of them and wanted them to be part of his life and ministry. Look at verse 30. Now I beseech you, brethren... It's hard for me to read that verse without thinking Romans 12, 1, where he says the same thing, but anyways. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Paul, it says in the KJV, is beseeching. It means exhorting, appealing, inviting them to join him in this. So it wasn't Paul just commanding them to do something that he wasn't doing. He says to strive together with me. Now this this is actually one word in the Greek here. It's, it sounds like a big word, but let me break it down like this. It's actually a compound word in the Greek, so it's made up of two different words. It comes from soon, which means together or to be in union with. It's to be right there with that person, to be in union with them. And the other word is agonizomai, from whence we get our word agony. And it means to struggle, to fight. To labor it's literally to compete for a prize anyone in here has gotten into any kind of physical fitness knows this word played out in their life it's the struggle and fight it takes to earn that prize it's it's you as we were talking before the service it's signing up for a race and all the time and effort that it takes to to be able to not just finish the race but strive to win the race. It's wanting to maybe deadlift or or bench press 400 pounds. You don't go and just go to the gym and load up 400 pounds and put yourself underneath of it. What do you do? You do like I did. I was so weak, I started with 95 pounds. And then the next week it was 100. And then 110, and then 135. And it's that struggle every single week continuing to do this. You strive and labor and struggle to get there. And that's what Paul's saying here. Struggle with me, labor with me, fight with me. Not against me, not just for me, but with me. You know, that's something else that we actually talked about a little bit before service about running. And you know, I like running, I don't like running. But running with somebody else makes it easier. I don't know if it makes it easier, but you're talking to somebody else while you're running and you feel like you do better at it. Same picture here. Paul's not alone. Come with me. Strive together with me. Come alongside me and do this with me. That even though your prayers are to God for me, you are praying with me In this. And notice Paul didn't just say, you know, I have an unspoken request. Did we have prayer requests today? Yes, I just have an unspoken one. That's not what Paul did. He gave what he wanted them to pray for him. Look at verse 31 and part of 32. He says, uh, to pray for me that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea. And that my service, which I have for Jerusalem, may be accepted of the saints, that I might come to you. I've noticed three things that he mentioned out of here. First, he wanted to be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea. Second, is that his service would be accepted of the saints. And third, that he might come to Rome. He mentions three things in that little... Specific things. Now, obviously, he could have mentioned a lot of other stuff, right? Maybe for safety, or maybe that his ministry might grow, or that his friends and family members might be saved. However, Paul is very specific here. And I'm going to look at all three of those things. And i got to label those like subpoints as A, B, and C. So A here is he wanted to be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea. Who's this talking about? It's speaking about non-believing Jews. Now, mind you... Was Paul a Jew or a Gentile? He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He might be talking about his family members here. It's speaking about the non-believing Jews. The Jews that rejected the Messiah and in turn reject the apostles and their preaching. They want to kill the apostles like they did their prophets and they did to the Son, their long-awaited Messiah displaying that they do not believe. And in case you think, and I've heard this said, well, they reject Jesus as Messiah, but they have, they're still Yahweh's chosen people. That makes absolutely no sense. Well, first, because Jesus is Yahweh. If you reject Jesus, you reject God. Don't say, well, they have the father as their god no there's no two separate gods they reject christ they reject god the apostle john who also was a jew wrote this who is the liar but the one who denies that jesus is the christ now the word christ is the word messiah who is a liar but the one who denies that jesus is the messiah he says this is the antichrist the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whosoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and the one that confesses the Son has the Father also. So if you deny Christ, you deny the Father as well. The Father doesn't have a people that the Son doesn't have. There's no two different people of God. There's not one, there's not one way to heaven for the Gentiles and another way for the Jews. Jesus said, remember, it's, I think it's right here on the front of this pulpit. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So because of their hatred for Jesus they also hated Paul. As Jesus said would happen, right? He said, Marvel not that the world hates you, they they hated me first. Because they hate me, they will hate you. So Paul once delivered from them, and that happened multiple times. If you read from Acts 21 through 24. The second thing is here is B under point B, sub point B. He also wanted them to pray that the service he was providing for them at Jerusalem would be accepted. Do you remember what the service was? It was just money. Remember, that was what we, we saw. The service was money, and Paul was delivering money to them at Jerusalem. Now, why would he ask for this prayer? Pray that, it, that the money is accepted. Well, I mean, if somebody showed up here with a large bag of money, wouldn't we just accept it? Well, hopefully, it would take some thought behind us before we just took money from somebody. Some people give money so they have power over you. Y'all know those people? I do. This is actually quite common in the church. Mr. and Mrs. Smith give the largest amount so they have all the power in the church, though they are doctrinally unsound and do nothing in the church. They just write the biggest check. I actually know a church in our county That because a certain someone, a certain person bought the land and paid for the church to be built there has all the say in the church, even though he doesn't attend church at all. So obviously there could be some red flags in just taking money, right? But also, remember, Paul isn't driving a car to Jerusalem He's not hopping on a plane and flying, and has the you know his duffel bag full of money. He's probably walking or riding a horse or a camel. So he will encounter maybe people that would want to rob him of that money. And we don't know how much money he was, but to a thief, it probably wouldn't matter, right? When somebody comes up to rob you, they don't say, well, how much do you have in your wallet before I do this? They just give it to me or die. So there could be that as well. So please, Paul's saying, please pray that this money gets delivered and accepted by them in Jerusalem to further God's kingdom. And the third little subpoint here, C, is so that he could come to them in Rome. In other words... Paul saying, I'm not coming to you guys if I don't do this first. I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to pray that it goes well and I make it to Jerusalem. That way I can come to see you. So please pray that it goes well so we can meet and fellowship. He wants this prayer to come full circle. Paul, who's at Corinth, writes this letter to Rome to ask them to pray for him so that he can make it safely to Jerusalem to minister to them and then make it back to Rome. And it was all for a purpose. It wasn't Paul just, you know, throwing darts at a, a map and seeing where he wanted to go next. Here's the purpose, point three. Paul's desire for them to be full of joy and peace in Christ Look at verse 32. That I may come unto you with joy by the will of God, and may with you be refreshed. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is why he wanted them to pray. This is why he wanted to come to them. This is what the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ brings. The gospel, this gospel preaching brings about many things, right? It obviously brings about the salvation of God's elect, but it also brings about joy and peace and, he says, and refreshment. And isn't it amazing that God simply gave us a message to bring this about? He gave us something that we all have. Words, communication. You don't have to be rich. You don't need a PhD. You don't need to be the wisest or strongest to obtain it. You don't need to be from a certain family lineage. This isn't something that's only the most privileged have. It's something that is communicated with words, something that is common to all men. This message of the gospel brings about the most blessings simply preaching and teaching and i don't mean simply from the pulpit or or a pastor it can come from a child looking to the risen savior who promises hope and peace with god produces joy and peace within us it gives us rest that's what paul says here he says and he says and may with you be refreshed this word for refreshed means to experience refreshment or rest in company with someone. It's to, to rest or refresh one's spirit with another. So it's not something that you can do alone. So when I come to you, we will behold the mercies of God together. We will look upon the risen Savior together. We will see together that we have been adopted into the family of God and now have His Spirit dwelling within us. And because of this, we can have joy together and be refreshed together. Now I want to bring this out before we close this doctrinal portion. <coughs> Paul calls God here the God of peace. That's what it says in verse 33. Now the God of peace be with you all. I think this is very important for us Christians. First, the world... Often makes the accusation that God is harsh, he's mean, he's unloving, he's not merciful, he's unjust. However, Paul calls him the God of peace. Here's why or how God is holy and just, right? Those that call Him harsh or mean are on the other side of the spectrum. They are not holy and just. They are unholy and unjust. So to them, He seems mean and harsh. Why? Because our God is holy and just and doesn't just look past sin. He punishes the sinner for their sins. By definition, if God is holy and just, He must do this. A holy, or you put in parentheses, a holy and just God that doesn't punish sins is a fake God. He is the God of peace because even though He is holy and just, He brings about peace to His people. I mean, think back to the garden. Adam sinned. Could God have destroyed Adam right then and been holy and just in doing so? However, what did He do? He didn't destroy Adam. He covered them. Remember, he covered them in animal skins, which was a picture that he slaughtered animals, which I believed, and I could, I would argue that it was probably a lamb that he slew there, and took the lamb skin and covered their nakedness with it. Why? To point them to the coming Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. So he covered them in their nakedness and he promised them that he would overcome the wicked one that just deceived you and I would crush his head. And in so doing, bring about peace. The peace is brought about by God, not Adam. You notice that, right? What was Adam doing? Was he did he go down and lay down and start making intercession? He hid. He was hiding. I'm sinful. I'm ashamed. I'm hiding from God. And God comes and covers him and says, the woman's seed will crush that serpent. But notice the peace is brought about through justice. Turn with me back to Romans chapter 3. We haven't even turned to anything yet. I feel bad because I'm speaking more than... We're reading God's Word. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. This is a very familiar verse here, but we're going to go further than that. It says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is such a blessing here. But being free, justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus... Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of the sins that are past, through the forbearance of God. To declare I say at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. Notice this: all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us. Everybody has sinned and come short of the glory of God. But God justified us freely. That seems unjust. Right? If I've broken a law and I go stand before the judge and he said, Well, you're free. It's unjust. But God didn't justify us by overlooking justice or bypassing justice. He meted out justice. Verse 25, it says, For whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood... The very one that was sinned against. When we sin, who do we sin against? Yes, we might sin against another human being, but ultimately, every sin is against God. So the very one that was sinned against came down from heaven and became a propitiation for us, which means an appeasement of God's wrath. He appeased God's wrath for us. He was sinned against, and he took those very sins that we do against him and laid them upon himself to pay for them. Justice was truly meted out. And it says that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. So justice isn't bypassed, but meted out on Jesus in our place. And now we have peace with God through his blood. And because we have peace with God, now we can have the peace of God and joy. We can be at peace even in pagan Rome that is trying to kill you off. We can have joy even when everything in life is falling apart. And we can have it together as we fellowship with one another through the gospel. You see, this is what is missed in a lot of fake churches. They may have a fake joy and peace, Joel Osteen may have a nice smile on camera. And his followers may seem happy. However, when the world comes crashing down, they have no foundation to rest upon. That foundation is the gospel. The gospel is where we fellowship and get our joy and peace from. If the gospel is missing, the very foundation for which we have peace with God is not present. And we're like the man that built his house upon the sand. The rain descended and floods came and the winds blew and beat upon the house and it fell. We need our house built upon the rock and that rock being Jesus Christ. So let's continue to do so here at Faith Reformed as they were in Rome with the Apostle. Let us rejoice and refresh one another together because we have the God of peace with us. Let's move into our application portion, our call to faith and repentance. As always I come to the unbelievers door you know as you sit here comfortably today not knowing Christ cause as we learned today this is, these are the only heated seats in the theater in South Carolina so you sit here comfortably today not knowing Christ the last thing you should be is comfortable if you don't know him This should make you uneasy sitting in here. Because though I spoke of the Christian having peace with God, you have no peace with God. And you may fool yourself into thinking God is pleased with you because you're not as bad as the next guy. You may fool yourself into thinking that God is pleased with your works and actions and thoughts. However, the Bible clearly says, and it was just quoted, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it says, a few chapters after that, it says, the wages of sin is death. All have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. That's where you sit today. Though it might be in a comfortable chair, it's with the wrath of God abiding upon you. God is not pleased with you. Actually, it says in Psalm 7, verse 11, it says, God is angry with the wicked every day. And your sins are what make you wicked. Oh, but I do this or that to help out society, right? It doesn't matter, you still have sin. And you're an enemy in your mind by wicked works. You stand condemned with no peace with God. The good news is, though, you sit in a church service where the gospel will be preached. The real good news. God has you here to hear this, if not anything else. You can not listen to any other part of this message, but hear this. There's only one way to have peace with God, and it's through the blood of His Son. God sent forth His Son to be a substitute for sinners. He came down from heaven and took on flesh, became a man, to live in place of men. To do what the first Adam did not do, to conquer He lived a perfectly righteous life, never sinning, and he fulfilled righteousness. And then he went to the Roman cross to be crucified and died for the sins of his people. Remember, he's a substitute for sinners. And though he died for sins, three days later rose from the grave, defeating death for his people. And now is ascended and seated at his father's right hand where he makes intercession for his people. You want peace with God? Look to Christ. It's only found in him. No amount of works you could do, no amount of behavior modification you could do could ever bring about peace with God. It's only through Him. So look to Him this morning and live. To us believers in here. We already believe the Gospel, right? Well, believe anew this morning. Not as though you lost your salvation or are getting it back because that's hogwash. But look afresh at the Gospel message. Look to Christ with clearer eyes this morning. You no doubt have, have sins you've struggled with this week. You have failures that have happened this week. You have friends and family members that either rejected you or you just butt heads with them and it feels like the relationship's broken. However, Christ has overcome all of this for you, brethren. Though you struggle with sin and lose a fight here and there, the war has been won. Christ has taken away your sins. He has really taken them as far as the east is from the west. Did you know that, say, you got in your car today and started driving east, you'd run into the ocean. But say your car could go under the ocean and drive through the ocean. And you just start headed east, you'll never be headed west. That's how far your sins are you'll never reach them. They've been taken away. Though you have friends or family you know, that hate you or simply don't like that you're a Christian, you've been adopted into the family of God and have more brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers than you can count. Remember Christ when they were like, isn't this the carpenter's son? Aren't, aren't his brothers and sisters here? And mother? And he said, my brothers and sisters and mother are those that do the will of God. And you'll spend all of eternity with them. Even the ones you don't like. <laughs> you got a brother in the faith you don't like him? Yeah. You're going to spend eternity with them. And you know what? We get to share in the fullness of the gospel, the blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ together. So look afresh at him this morning. Quit looking at yourself as a failure or broken or not good enough. Though they, those may be true of you, they aren't true of you in Christ. In Christ, you are more than conquerors. That's what he says. God sees you as perfect, not broken, and holy. You have a perfect peace with Him. And because of that, we should have what Scripture calls the peace of God. We can have, be at peace within ourselves because we have peace with God. There's peace, the peace with God, which leads to the peace of God. So let's this morning stop navel gazing, acting like Eeyore, kicking a can down the road, and lift up our heads this morning to look upon Christ, who has already conquered in your place and goes before you to fight your battles. Rest in Him. Now, I call to war. Notice, like I said, Paul isn't doing this alone. Even down to the prayers, he's saying, come with me. Strive with me. We're in this together. It's a fight. It's a battle. But we don't battle alone. See, this is where rogue Christianity fails, right? You know, the person in the, no, I don't need a church. I got me and my Bible and the Holy Spirit. That's good. You can't fight this battle alone. You need me, and I need you. God has gifted me in areas he hasn't gifted you, and he's gifted you in areas that he hasn't gifted me. And here's where we often fail, even within some good, sound churches. We think that one area is higher than another. We think... Oh, he's the pastor. He has the highest position in the church. I want that. I want that position. I want that title because that's the highest position or title in the church while not being gifted or called in that area. This is not what we should be like. First, the pastor definitely is not the highest position because no position is higher than any other. The ground beneath the cross is level, right? Also, as a pastor... I would say maybe the stay-at-home mom might be a higher position. And I don't say this mockingly. Or She has two or three little souls that hang on everything that she says. She raises them up and sees everything they do. And she serves her husband, who, who should be working hard to provide for them. And in all of this is never given recognition or title. Just quietly behind the scenes, Raising up little souls. Just quietly serving her family and the Lord. And in that, raising up the next generation of Christians. Or, maybe the man who works hard to provide for his family. I know some of y'all feel like this. Hate leaving the house to go to work. But still do it. 40, 50, 60 hours a week to put food on the table and a roof over the head. And when he's done with that, he comes home and he serves his family and leads them in the way of the Lord. He, though is tired and wore out, comes home from work and opens up his Bible and reads to them. And even though he can't answer all the questions, he keeps going. To me, those people are more important than the pastor. Well, first of all, the pastor should be doing that kind of stuff anyways. But the thing is, when we do these things together with one another, we're much stronger. We grow together more. We pray the same prayers. We hear the same preaching. We preach the same message. Not just to those inside of our home, but to those outside as well. Brother, that's what the Christian life is about. You know... You could probably throw a stone and hit a church that is, the Christian life is about miracles, healings, and speaking in tongues, and, and, and they think that's what Christianity is. You turn on television, like I said, you, you hear preaching about health and wealth as though that's what Christianity is. You know what Christianity is? The Lord saved me, save my wife. We have children, I'm raising them up just to look to Him. I go to work every day. She labors in the home every day. That's it. No, no miracles of, of a dead person coming out of the grave. No miracles of, you know, some act like they lengthen people's legs and stuff. It's just, it's not about the extraordinary. It's about the ordinary mundane. That's where we live our lives at. That's where Christianity is. It's about walking with the Lord together. So let's strive together to do this as families, but more importantly, as one family of God,
1: that our joy may
0: be full and we may be refreshed by one another for the advancement of God's kingdom and the glory of His name. Amen.